Spirit Radio Podcasts. And today on our parenting slot with Katrina Lynch, we're talking about tattle tales. Does your child tell little tattle tales? Are they really a big deal? You know, this thing of, I'm telling on you. And uh, I'm sure it sounds familiar to lots of parents listening, but what do you do and how do you uh, tell the difference between tattle tales and just in you know giving information from a child so what is the difference between the two katrina is going to be helping us with this so it's kind of one of these things katrina probably that just starts happening little tattle tales you know it's at what age do you think kids going to become aware of it having a bit of power coming back and saying i'm telling on you yeah well initially uh it starts with um a genuine care for another sibling that would probably be the first the first time and uh, so they may see their younger sibling or usually it is a younger sibling doing something they shouldn't be doing, reaching for something or in imminent danger. And they will go, Mommy or Daddy or whatever, you know, and y- you you will respond. So what they learn is when I do this, there is an attention response and I there is attention comes. OK. Now, just park that thought and hear this. What is the the kernel of tattletailing versus important information is, am I being told this for the good of the person who's involved or for their detriment? In other words, is my child trying to help their sibling or whoever it is that they're uh, talking about are they trying to do something good for them or are they trying to get them into trouble? And does it start off with the kind of the good in terms of, oh, Johnny's putting his finger in the plug socket, mommy, come quick. Usually. And then as you say, oh, this gets attention, so I'm going to build on that. Exactly. You know, they get attention and, of course, they get uh they should get praise. And then, of course, everybody wants attention and everybody wants praise. You know, it's a natural human reaction. So then they begin to, um, initially, it is kind of, it's not, oh, I want to get the baby into trouble. It is a protection for the baby. Oh, mummy, the baby is 40 feet away from the step. It might fall down the step and it becomes an over anxiety, you know. So, which you don't want either. Which you don't want either, exactly. So um, that's just where it starts from and that's, you know, kind of where, where it begins. And um, if you think it's becoming sort of anxiety orientated, you can sit down and explain to your toddler and, you know, just because your toddler may not be talking an awful lot, it doesn't mean that they don't understand every single word that is coming out of your mouth because they do. Uh, it's language learning. I'm not a linguist, but I do do know uh, that, you know, sort of the first thing that happens when someone is learning is a language is they understand an awful lot, but they probably can't string the words it. together. Exactly. So don't be thinking, oh, my child won't understand what I'm saying. So but do you just explain as much as possible? Explain as much as possible. You can kind of say to them, if you know the baby or whoever it is, uh, you know, is safe, that you've got 
you know, you've taken re- good precautions to keep the place safe, you can say, Mary, thank you so much for telling me that uh, John was going near the plugs, but I have all the plugs covered and everything is safe, so you don't need to worry. I'm here now and I am in the room with John and John is safe so you don't it's not your job now anymore it's my job and I am going to look after him so you're kind of lifting the the imposed responsibility that the child has imposed they, yeah, on themselves. themselves to be kind of anxious because in a way obviously it's nice looking out for a sibling but as you say you don't want them to be kind of anxious about it what do you do then when it moves into I'm just trying to get attention and uh, you know two siblings are arguing and you know Johnny took my toy and he yeah. hit me but did he and who hit you know what how do you handle that kind of transition exactly exactly so again it's conversation because if you know so when the child comes to you can do a quick reckoning and say to yourself is this to protect the person in question or is this to punish the person in question and if you're quite confident that it's to punish the person in question uh then you have to sit down and have a conversation. Now, what you do also want to do, but, you know, just this is for you to pop into the back of your head for years down the road. So don't get stressed out when I hear you say that when I say this. Um, you don't want to shut down the thing completely because there may be times when siblings are doing things when they are older that are potentially dangerous, like doing drugs you know, drinking, you know, whatever, you know. So you're trying to encourage good conversation with the right intention. Exactly. It's the intention that's behind it. So when you sit down and have, when Mary comes in, poor Mary, she's getting an awful flake and say, (laughs) Mary comes in and says, you know, oh, John is, you know, eating the sweets in the special press cupboard, you know, he's so bold. Or, you know, you kind of say, Okay, Mary, you know, maybe sit down and say, why why are you worried about that, Mary? You know, she, oh, well, because you shouldn't be doing that because it's bold, you know. And you can maybe kind of sit down and, you know, say to her the difference between, well, okay, I appreciate that, but, um, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. He is a baby and he doesn't understand. And... Um, You don't need to be telling tales on him or if it's even an older child, you know, and they're doing something that they they shouldn't do. Oh, you know, John is watching TV and you told us not to watch TV and you said we were not allowed to look at TV and he's watching TV. And, you know, so you can, you know, say, well, that's actually, you know, a tattletale and tell, explain to your child the difference between having the good of the person, you know, as I say, their protection or their punishment. Are you hoping that they're going to be punished and get into trouble, you know, and you're sort of, or not. And um, again, it might be, uh, you know, as I say, revisit something. Sometimes if there's a kind of a bit of emotion involved in something, you know, um, particularly if you think there's a bit of backbiting involved, and I'm going to get back at you now and I'm going to, you know, squeal on you. Is that kind of sibling, on you. sibling rivalry inevitable? 
Oh, I think, well, I have never known a pair of siblings. Now, maybe there's lots of people out there and they will contact us and let us know. And I may I say genuinely, I am delighted for you. And I would love to talk to you. But, you know, I personally do not know of any family who have two or more children who have not experienced sibling rivalry. It is as normal as day follows night and it's just and this is just it can be one of those manifestations of that where you want to be seen as kind of the goody two shoes you know I'm great because I'm not doing the bold thing that the other sibling is doing exactly and so um again it's how do you stop a behavior that you do not want to continue you do not reward it that's basically it you encourage what you want to keep going you ignore and do not reward the um the the stuff that you don't want to. So if Johnny is watching TV and he shouldn't be watching TV and Mary's come in and she's tattletailing on him, just ignore it and just say, um, I'm sure I, I'm sure you can sort I'm sure I'll sort don't worry about that, Mary, I'll sort it later. And do not respond. Even if you're boiling mad with Johnny for watching the TV when he shouldn't have been, you can deal with that later. Separately. That's an important point that you've touched on, Katrina, just in terms of managing those dynamics. So let's let's say that you've got two kids and one of them is a tattletailing on the other for watching the television when they shouldn't. Um, In terms of the, the, the scolding or the punishment, better to do it with the child separately that because is it subconsciously part of what the the child that's told the tattletale wants to see their sibling kind of getting uh, given out to and the finger points at them absolutely you know i mean if you are looking for revenge and that's basically what it is you know um it's if you're looking for revenge you want to i'm not recommending revenge now by the way <laughs> It's not, it, it is, it is, it's poisonous. It's poisonous. Yeah. it's poisonous, you know, and it's usually based in jealousy and all that sort of stuff. But that's for another day. We want to experience the revenge. You know, we want to see it. There's no point in knowing that I'm talking very sinful areas now here, but so hey, you, I'm a human being, you know. So, you know, if I don't see it and if I don't experience it, I, it's, it's not worthwhile. So you might say something like, okay, Johnny, <laughs> thank yeah. you for letting me know. That, and well, you do what you said, ask the reasons. Well, why did you tell me this? And if they're kind of good, that's yeah. grand. And then you say, I'll chat to Mary about that later. And you just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, exactly. So you, you, you just don't react. You don't respond. Uh, you just tuck into the back of your head. Okay. I need to talk to John about turning on the TV when he's not supposed to. But, uh, and so I'll just say to Mary, I, it's okay, Mary, I'm going to, I'll do with that. Or, you know, that's not important. That's not important with me right now. And, um, and then sit down with her and explain to her those kind of things are, you know, just grassing people out. So, um, and then do talk to Johnny privately afterwards because you want to respect his dignity as well. There's dignity involved here. You don't want to belittle the grass are out, you know, but at the same time you want to respect the older child's dignity. So basically, encourage what you want to keep going. Ignore, insofar as is possible, what you want to uh, terminate and ask yourself, is this a question of keeping a person, you know, protecting them 
or is it to punish the person? And those are the things that you can mull over in your spare time <laughs> while you're doing the ironing and tidying up the toys and doing, you know, 101 other things, you know, that... Um, I think for, for mothers, that's called three o'clock in the morning when you wake up thinking about these things. Exactly. And can I just say one thing in conclusion? Um, I don't know about you who are, lis- who are listening. I get it wrong a lot of the time. I make mistakes. I react when I shouldn't. I don't react when I should. I have loads of broken crockery and all that sort of stuff. But we're okay. We're okay. So don't be tying yourself up in a knot saying, no, is this protection or is this punishment or is this... this, you got to go with your gut parental instincts. They are guidelines, you know, and, and they're helpful as we go through life. But please... Don't tie yourself up in knots. The important thing is the relationship between yourself and your children. And a good hug, and I'm sorry, covers a multitude. On both sides, I I imagine. Exactly. Child to parent and parent to child. Katrina, as always, thank you so much for your parenting advice this morning. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to getting some wisdom from our next guest because I think no matter what profession you are in, if you can have a career that has a longevity of 53 years and continues, but also is something that you love and that can bring people happiness, it's a pretty good business to be in. But what is the secret to success? He is embarking on a nationwide tour. And I think for any fans of his, really, when you, when you think of his greatest hits, which is what the tour is focusing on, there's probably hundreds to choose from and uh, we were reflecting on this morning myself and the producer as we're coming into of course Saturday's match with Ireland versus New Zealand that he wrote Ireland's Call I mean that iconic song and lots of Eurovision winning hits Grammy nominated songs and so it's great to have back with us in studio I'm just always delighted that Phil continues to pop in and give of his time to us here at Spirit Radio and come in for the chat Phil good morning to you Good morning Wendy it's it's not too long a a travel for me to come see you all in Spirit because I live about five minutes away so it's a nice little nice little dander up the road A nice little dander up the road but Phil it is it's still it's something that really impresses me with with singer-songwriters or whatever profession people are in uh, when they've had such a long career, so much success that, you know, they continue to come in and do the interviews when you know, they might they might not have to, but it might be easier to stay in bed. Is that, do you think that's well, one of the keys, just the hard work element? Well, it's certainly easier to stay in bed, that's for sure. Um, but, um, you know, you have to take, you have to take uh, your career seriously. First of all, there's hardly a day goes by, Wendy, that I don't thank God for the fact that for all of these years, I've made a living from my talent. Now that's that's a privilege given to few people, um, and when you enjoy what you do, that's 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 a bonus. Um, but it, you know, it is your job. It's your job. I regard it as a job. Um, and as I, as I told you last time, I mean, I get up for work on Monday morning, and I continue to get up for work on Monday morning. Um, and it would be easier just like to put out a few CDs and you stay in bed or read the paper and dodge around and go for a walk and see front and bray. But you know, I feel that. Um, if I have a loyal fan base who've been with me for all of these years, that it's some kind of, um, I owe it to them to get out and, and, uh, and take my music uh, into the country. Early days when we started um, the whole uh, orchestral thing, I would do the National Concert Hall with the orchestra, Cork Opera House with the orchestra, and that would be it. Or maybe you know, the waterfront at Belfast. So then we evolved the one-man show, which as it stands at the minute with, with Geraldine Brannigan, my wife, as a special guest, it's a very kind of tight operation. That enables us 
to take the music into the country. There are so many um, of those very nice and very, very, uh, very professional theatres. Even you know um, the smaller towns in Ireland will have will have two, three, four hundred seaters, which is perfect for for the for the one man show. Um, so you, uh, I've often said that it's not up to the people in Waterford. Um, to come to my house to hear me play the piano, you know, I got to get off my butt and and get down to Waterford and play for them. And be it be it uh, Waterford, Cork, Tralee, Galway, wherever it might be. How do you find that after all these years doing the kind of travelling around, the touring? Because while I imagine the actual performance side and just getting to interact with the audience and do what you love is great, but the the kind of in between bit is that tough? That's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean you you you, you don't jump out of bed and go wow. Three hours to drive up to Donegal today. Whoa, that's going to be fun. It isn't fun, but it comes with the territory, you know. I mean, I get a little impatient with with uh, with wannabe performers and aspiring um, musicians, whatever, that they complain. Um, but oh God, two hour drive this and do that. That comes with the territory, you know. Yeah, and I've to... heard that a few times with the kind of up and comings when they come in to do an interview and say, "This is very early for me," and uh, it's a bit frustrating. All right, oh yeah, it must frustrate you when you think of all the work that you continue to do. Yeah, I, I, Billy Connolly told me a story years ago. Um, he was he was touring down in uh, in Australia, he was in Sydney, in a real kind of. Uh, five star fancy hotel in Sydney, and he's in the top floor, you know, with all the kind of. Um, uh, sweets, etc., and he gets he gets into the lift to come down, and also getting into the lift is a guitar player from some um, uh, boy band that had recently had some hits, and the kid starts whining about oh all this travel, we got to get a plane now, we're going to do this, that, and Billy says, let me tell you something, son, this is as good as it gets, and it took me forty years to get here, you know, and that's that's the reality. The that's kind the, of the, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The kind of the different attitudes and I think the the attitude of, of yourself and Billy is probably one of the reasons for longevity in terms of just that hard work element. You mentioned Phil earlier just uh, that you're, you've been able to have a career based on your talent. Was there a kind of light bulb moment where you realised early on I have a talent here I, have, I actually have something different, I have something special, I have a gift. Well I, I don't know if I saw it in those terms but when, you see here, here's, here's the thing I grew up in Derry where uh, there was a lot of unemployment. Um, and one of the few ways that a Catholic in Derry could make a living as a semi-pro musician, where he went, where if he went for an audition in a band, the first question he was asked was not, what school did you go to? In other words, what religion are you? Um, so I grew up with the notion of music as being a way to earn a living as much as anything else. And that's that's critical, you know. Music was more than just something that I, you would study at college or perform in the, in the annual uh, face coil. Um, that it was uh, potentially a way to earn a living. So that was always in the back of my mind because that was, that was a kind of way of life in Derry. Then when I was at, uh, when I was at Queen's uh, University up there I had a little band from uh, I think I started within the first fortnight of arriving up there. And in my last year, um, some bright spark in, in the Rag Week Committee, you know every year the university will do mad stunts to, to, uh, to raise funds, came up with the idea of, of making a student record. So, I, so it came to me as the kind of go-to guy in the university for such bits of madness. So I said, no problem, I'll write a song and we'll, uh, we'll record it. We, uh, we uh, enlisted 
a student of, of electronics who happened to have like a tape recorder and a few microphones and things. So that became, the studio was a little, a room in the, in the university. Anyway, I made this student record and, um, we released it, sold a few thousand, I suppose, and got a bit of mileage. That summer, I was working with my little band in the Great Southern Hotel in Bundoran. And, um, I bumped into the Capital Show Band who were also working in that area and staying in the same hotel. So I got pally with them and I lost no time at all <laughs> in pressing a copy of my record into, uh, into the hands of Des Kelly, the leader, and Butch Moore, who was the, the singer. And, uh, talking about light bulb moments, a couple of months later I got a call from Des Kelly, the leader, to say that, um, they were going to record the song as their first single. It's released by Butch Moore. The song was called Foolin' Time, and that became a top three record in Ireland. And I think, Wendy, from that moment on, I became unemployable. You know, there was no way I was going to get a proper job after that. Because I you knew, thought there's something in this. I thought there's this. something in this, exactly. I thought there's something in this. Um, so then, when uh, when I finished in university, through my connections with the Capital Show Band and, and uh, their London agent, I kind of saw a bit of a gap in the hedge. So I uh, I got my ass to London and started knocking doors. Um and you know You needed uh, a brass neck and a thick skin as well as the Well talent. for the first two years it was it was touch and go, you know, just making ends meet, trying to make a living, um, trying to avoid the bank manager, um and, and trying to get a foothold in the music industry. And that's the thing is there's there that that's the side I suppose that people don't often see. Um they, they see the kind of the hits, the fame, the what's perceived as the glamorous side of things oh, yeah. and, and forget that there in so many cases that there's all been many years of struggles, of hard work, of as you say, trying to pay the bills. But in the in the in the success that you've experienced, Phil, how have you? I went to see the film. I think a lot of people have probably seen say the remake of A Star Is Born, mm. and certainly it does not glamorise the music industry. Mm. It, it shows really just how um, how cutthroat, soul destroying it can be mm. for some people. Um, but how did how have you kind of stayed grounded over the years? And um, that groundedness has obviously contributed to the fifty three years that you've had. First of all, you got to stay. Um, calm, you know, you can't, you can't be, you can't overreact either to success or to disappointment, you know, because you get, um, uh, sell a few million records does not mean that you can walk on water, does not mean that you have found a cure for cancer. It means that you've sold some records. That's it. That, you know, all the dots joined up. Equally so, you may have put a lot of effort and a lot of creativity into a project be it a song, be it an album, whatever, and uh, you, you fall in love with it. The problem is when it's released, nobody else loves it, and it dies on the vine. So that's not the end of the world either, you know. And you have to ha- you have to be phlegmatic enough to say to take that on the chin. You have to live with your disappointments, um, and and just take them uh, as part of the of the rough and tumble. Just as they, uh, uh, a disappointment doesn't define you as a failure. I discovered early on that there's no shame in failing. The shame is in not trying. Um, so just as uh, the balance between don't get carried away um, if you get a big hit, um, 
don't get suicidal if you have a flop. Yeah, and, and, and get back up again. Very good advice, whatever area of work you're in, or indeed life, uh, in terms of the success and the failures that you will inevitably experience. On to the tour now, Phil. 26 dates. Tell us a little bit about what people can expect and uh, touch on some of the places you're going to be going. Well, we've, we've, uh, we call this uh, gold and silver days, and we're just kind of trawling through um, those 50-something years of songs and there's some of the obvious ones you know uh, Ireland's Call for example especially in the climate right now that's that's a must that has to go in the town I love so well and many of the kind of obvious songs but then I have uncovered some other some other songs um, that for example it's, it's happened quite regularly in, in the first bunch of dates here people have come afterwards and said I didn't realise you wrote that song so we're kind of surprising people with some of the some of the bits of music they would be aware of but not connect them with Phil Coulter at all. Which, is that nice for you in terms yeah. of doing... Obviously, it's old material, but it's new to, uh, new to some people. And, and do you find yourself, when you were going back, trying to pick what's going to go in the set list, going, oh, my, yeah. I, I mean, there's so much for you to pick from us. How do you do it? Precisely. The trick is to try and keep it fresh. You know, because somebody's been to see me last year, I don't want them to think, oh, I, I know what he does. I saw that last year. No, no, you haven't seen this. Uh, and you always try and uh, and reshape it. You know, you always try and... and uh, and have different ingredients and freshen the whole thing up. Um, and that's that's what we do. So at the same time, you know, I, I'm aware of the fact that there is no way that I can do two hours and walk off stage without doing The Town of Love So Well or Scorn at His Simplicity, you know, um, or, or, or any of those big songs. Um, but as well as that, then, we're kind of thrown in uh, lighter moments like, like the Bay City Rollers. We do a Bay City Rollers medley um, and stuff like that. Show bands, all that kind of, you know, we, we kind of trawl through, you know, 50 years of music. is a lot of different trends, a lot of different, uh, lot of different ingredients. I mean, alongside of, for a, for, a, for a period, there were friends of mine who thought that I was schizophrenic because I could spend the month of, of January in the studio with the Bay City Rollers. And then the month of February in the studio with the Dubliners, you know, people say, how, how, how can you make that work? Because they're, they're so, like, they're, they're, they're polar opposites. But for me, that was that was always part of the excitement. The you know? fun of it all and, and uh, an expression of your, your talent as well. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic story. I think people will really, really enjoy hearing the old hits and then the ones that will surprise them as well. Phil, thanks so much for chatting to us about it on Spirit Radio. I've been chatting to Phil Coulter, who is embarking on a 26-state nationwide tour throughout the country. And if you want to find out where Phil is performing near you, you can go to his website, philcoulter.com. Well, let's play out with one of those songs. Phil, that you mentioned that people love to hear so much when you are performing. This is Score Not His Simplicity and it's off your Phil Coulter and his orchestra, the Live Experience album. Do you remember that one? I do indeed. Many years ago we we filmed and recorded it down in uh, in Limerick. I remember it with great fondness. Good stuff, Phil. Thanks so much for joining us on Spirit Radio this morning. See the child with the golden hair Yet eyes that show the emptiness inside Do we know? Can we understand just how he feels? Or have we really tried? See him now As he stands alone And watches children play A children's game
It's time now for our weekly Life in Five interview where we chat to people just about their life and their faith as well. And they just tell us a little bit about themselves. They answer a few questions. And it's just a, a really lovely, uplifting part of the show where we just get to talk to ordinary people who've had extraordinary experiences often in their life and especially experiences of faith that they can share with us. Well, our next guest is Guna Landi, who's originally from Latvia. Now she's living in Killarney in County Kerry. She actually came to Ireland to provide translation at a memorial service for a Latvian person who died here. And when she was over here, extraordinarily, she ended up meeting her future husband at the service. And the rest, as they say, is history. Earlier on in the week, she chatted to Steve. And I think a lot of what Guna has to say is going to resonate with a lot of people, especially those who moved to Ireland from another country and have made Ireland their home. Here's her chat with Steve. So I'm Guna and I'm originally from Latvia and I moved to Ireland seven years ago. And uh, it's a long story. How did I move here? But shortly, it's, I met my husband through memorial service. And that's what made me to move in Ireland, actually. So, yeah. So, Guna, thank you so much for being our Life in Five guest and taking on the Life in Five challenge. You've chosen five questions from this list. And the first one is, a favorite Bible verse and why? Um, my favorite Bible verse is from uh, Proverbs 18:21, which says that death and life is in the power of my tongue. And what that means is that every message, every word that I speak carries either life or death in my life. So I am aware what I speak every day to people around me, to my baby girl, to my husband. And I try to be, to, to be positive and to bring life in my life and in the lives of people around me. I find that interesting as well because um, would I be right in saying that you're a translator also? Yes, I am. I've been translating for missionaries and for pastors back in Latvia, from English English to Latvian and from Latvian to English. Um, Okay, and your next question, Guna, is how does God help you in your work? Yeah, well, I don't have work as such as paid work, but I'm looking after my 22-month-old girl at home. So I'm I'm a stay-at-home mommy, and, you know, like two-year-olds can be a bit challenging. So when I see myself that I can't handle it anymore, she's she's, uh, stepping on my boundaries too much, so I just pray God and to give me a peace and energy when I need it. And actually, it helps me. I see the hope and I see the energy coming and I see that patience developing in me with her. So, yeah. Now, your next question, Guna, is a relatively new question that we recently added to our list. And so thank you so much for taking it up. The question is, how does God help you in your marriage? Yeah, so that's a big question for those who are married. Yeah, so, um, like, we... We all know every marriage has a bit of a getting used to your partner or, you know, your husband. And um, it's a learning how to be humble and how to how to be honest to admit that you, you said wrong or you did something wrong. And I've been asking God to help me, actually, when I'm wrong, to help me to say that I'm wrong and help me admit that I'm wrong and that's very hard to do it but actually when you practice it becomes very easy and you become very sensitive to that you know because as far as faster you acknowledge that you're wrong wrong it's easier to communicate with your partner and you know it just lifts up the marriage and it's, the honesty in marriage is very important so thank you for that Guna and your next question is a person who had a big influence on you uh it was my nanny. Um, I say it was because she died two years ago, and 
she was actually half deaf for since she was 12 and she had the back pain all her life and within the pain which she had within the sufferings which she had she was always positive and she always encouraged myself or my sister or my mom and uh, I learned from her that no matter in what circumstances you are that you actually don't leave the circumstances control your life or control your attitudes rather than you control your attitudes or your circumstances with yourself, with the motivation or the way you respond to the circumstances. What was her name? And when you say your nanny, is this your grandmother or my a nanny? My grandmother. My grandmother, yes. Anna. Her name was Anna. Yeah. Lovely. And your final question, Guna. What one luxury would you find it hard to live without? I say toothbrush, definitely. <laughs> because for me, it's very important to have my teeth clean. So you can use a finger or whatever, you know, which I used before when I stayed in the camps and I didn't forget my toothbrush or something. But it's so hard for me to be without the toothbrush. So I'd say that's the one luxury which I definitely take everywhere with me. So. <laughs> I can relate to that one. I have to say, yeah, whenever I go away and I, if I forget my toothbrush, I'm just lost, absolutely lost. And just so relieved when I get back to my toothbrush or get a new toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just to, while you're here, Guna, do you want to say a little bit about wh what it's been like as an experience to be a Latvian moving to Ireland? Yes. Uh, I must say the first two years were very exciting for me because I was in a new country. You know, it's like when you're traveling summers, it's that excitement of being a new place and everything. But the missing of your family and missing of home and especially the language barrier, you know, uh, it's like... I used to speak in Latvian, I used to dream in Latvian, think in Latvian, and then suddenly everything comes in in English. It was so very hard, actually. Sometimes my brain just shut down and I couldn't, I couldn't talk, I couldn't understand English. It just didn't come out of me, you know, so it was the hardest thing which I found, you know, like, and especially when Christmas comes or birthday, you want to be with your family, you know, but... Yeah, now I have my family here. Now I'm married and I have a husband and I have a baby girl. So it's my family here and I do miss my my extended family, you know, in Latvia. But it's not that very missing part as when I moved just yeah. here, you know. But yeah, the language barrier and the culture shock was the biggest thing for first two years, definitely. Even the way English you speak in English, it's, for example, you say, like, um, I will call you which for me would mean, would mean I will ring you on the phone, you know. But for you, as Irish person, it means that you will call, you will come to the door and you'll actually knock at the door or whatever. You will come in your presence, you know. That kind of different wordings, you know, because there is lots of mis mis misunderstandings can happen with people around and they have happened. So that's how I learned it kind of hard way, you know. But, yeah, it's probably different in every country, you know, like, so. Well, it's been great having you here, Guna, and hearing you and your perspective on, on life and also living in Ireland. Before you go, would you like to, we have many listeners from uh, Latvia, both in Ireland and hopefully maybe every now and then uh, on the internet. Do you want to say a final greeting to, uh, to all your compatriots? Yeah, as group Patek, Sveicens visiem, kas Latviešiem, kas klausās, Šo programmu vai no Latvijā vai īrijā. Un, jā, patīkami, droši patīkami dzirdēt ir jūsu pašu valodu īrijā. Tā kā, jā. 
I understood that perfectly. <laughs> Guna, Guna Landy, thank you so much for being our guest this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. That was Guna Landy, our Life in Five guest, chatting to Steve earlier on this week and our Life in Five series continues every Thursday shortly after 11 o'clock. Well, I'm delighted to have my next guest with us in studio. The last time she was with us in studio, there was a few more of her family in here and there was singing and toe tapping and everything going on. And uh, her family were here. They are, you'll know them as the Willis clan. You might know them from America's Got Talent and that just kind of put them in the spotlight. And then they went on to have their own reality TV show back in 2015. But like a lot of things, I think probably many of us can identify with it, especially with the era of kind of um, putting on masks and social media and things appearing to be fantastic. But for my next guest, behind the scenes, not all was not what it seemed. And it came to light in September 2016 when her father, Toby Willis, was arrested. And we're going to be talking a little bit about her story because she's here in Ireland to courageously share her story. She's going to be sharing it at the Festival of Politics in Dublin, which is on this evening. And the, the theme of it is is finding hope and healing uh, beyond these traumatic experiences. So really putting forward her story as a survivor of abuse and, and looking at the hope beyond that. So it's great to have Jennifer McDowell with us in studio. Well, Jennifer, you were Jennifer Willis the last time, so yes. re- congratulations <laughs> on your on your recent marriage. Thank you so much. You're, you're, you're still in the honeymoon phase because you were married in May, right? Yes. Well, yeah. Congratulations to you. We might talk a little bit about that later yeah, on. Absolutely. And... Um, yeah, I have to say, you know, when I think of the last time and I remember it well that you were here with some of the, the Willis clan and you mm-hmm. were performing and just the, the joy and the energy and the closeness of your family, I think probably I, along with many others in the world, would be shocked to mm-hmm. to learn of uh, what had happened mm-hmm. between yourself and your father and just um, what you had suffered um, mm-hmm. in, in a way maybe maybe kind of take us back to where it all started or or the or the point even where uh, i mean for a time did, did you probably didn't know mm-hmm. that it was abuse because you were so young yeah that's 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 definitely correct um so the abuse for me started when i was very young between the ages of 6 7 8 somewhere in there um i was really too young to to really yeah as you said really understand that at the time um, and as as a child, you are still learning what is correct behavior, what's appropriate, what is not. And the people that you look to to teach you that are your parents. So when it is your father that is the one who is abusing you and, you know, just being inappropriate, it's very hard to flag that as a child. Um, but, yeah, definitely as I got older, I, I started to learn that. But um, was but there a really... point where you kind of realized, Jennifer, something's not right here because as you say you know as such a young child mm-hmm. you know this is your father this is someone who you you trust you know right. that you idolize i'm mm-hmm. sure um as a young child but was it was it a particular moment or was it just you you kind of putting the pieces together mm-hmm. going something's not right here yeah for me it was definitely a slower putting the pieces together and by the time i was eight, nine, ten, I was very certain that there were things that were very wrong with my relationship with my father and how he was treating me and what he was doing to me. And um, But by that time, because it had been, the abuse had been going on for so long, there was a lot of shame that I felt. And, okay, now I know this is wrong, but I've allowed this to happen for such a long time. Now I feel responsible for allowing it to happen. So I feel like that was, once I did understand 
that it was wrong. That's what kept me from talking about it. Is I felt and, a lot and of that, shame. That is something that you do hear a lot of abuse survivors say: is they there is this this feeling of it, this is is this my fault somehow? Mm-hmm. And, and yes. oftentimes, of course, the perpetrator right. plays into that. Feeling. Absolutely. Did you have that mm-hmm. experience? Uh, yes, a, a bit. Um, I, I think it was definitely more of the just on my end saying, you know, I'm responsible somehow for this. And um, uh, coming up to my teenage years, there was definitely um, uh, several instances where I really put up a fight and kind of confronted my father on things and said, no, this is wrong. I'm not I'm not going to do this. And I think that um, I think that uh, that kind of he realized at that moment that I wasn't going to keep silent if he continued in that behavior. So it really tapered off for me around that time. And what, so what happened next then? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I know that with those who carry out abuse, they ought, they generally have more than kind of one victim. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. when your father realized, okay, um, I can't keep getting away with this mm-hmm. abuse anymore, did he abuse others? Mm-hmm. He did, yeah. And I was not aware of that at the time. Uh, it really wasn't until after he was arrested that I found out what he had done to some of my sisters as well. And that was a, a horrific moment for me because, again, kind of that shame and that also responsibility came back as in um, – Am I responsible for what he did to my siblings because I knew what he had done to me and I should have known that he was capable of doing that to others. So I think that's that's definitely something that a lot of victims deal with. But of course, it's not my fault, you know, what what he did. But um, it was, uh, yeah, definitely a, a horrific experience of like starting to really realize that because uh, uh, from what I understand and just from talking to people like yourself Jennifer who are just so courageous um, in sharing their stories is that so often those who carry out abuse like this like your own experience they are people that we know that mm-hmm. we that are very close to us but yeah. they are are very uh, cunning and how they um, mm-hmm. manipulate and control yeah. um, I know there was physical abuse but was there a kind of a, an emotional abuse element too? yeah absolutely there yeah there absolutely was more than just a sexual abuse um, in in our family and that's something that we all felt to a certain degree the the emotional abuse and either other physical abuse outside of sexual abuse and so unfortunately that is something that that we all experience at some point but as you mentioned um, the uh, perpetrators a lot of times are very cunning. They are very smart people. And uh, yes, they are statistically way mo- more often than not known to the victim and uh, considered a trustworthy person, so to speak, in the victim's eyes, whether it is a family member or a coach or someone that is, you know, a teacher, or, you know, someone that is supposed to be trusted. And so that can make it very difficult for for the victim to one like know how to handle it but then two speaking out against this person that is not only supposed to be a trusted person in their own eyes but a trusted person in the eyes of their family and their friends and the community around them so that can make it even more difficult for a victim because to speak you're, out. Th- you're you're thinking of all all the implications and right exactly it's probably hard to articulate but at the he's still your father so mm-hmm. you still yeah love him in a, yeah. in a way or no mm-hmm. yeah no i would say that that is a fair assessment of that there is it's very complicated like set of emotions that i have but i mean being my father i will always have a certain connection with him a certain um just um like natural want to love him and what about um, forgiveness have you been able to forgive him yeah so i think that that's a that's something that i really love to to like share on this and some people aren't really open to hearing this because it can seem kind of a um, 
an odd, an odd, an odd way to come at it. But um, I think that in my own in my own heart, I have forgiven my father for what he has done to me. How did you find the the really the I guess the the, the that takes courage too, and mm-hmm. the and the emotional mm-hmm. strength to be able to to choose that mm-hmm. rather than yeah. than hate. Yeah. So uh, my faith obviously was a huge part in playing into that, and just knowing that. I mean, to a obviously what what my father has done is 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 an awful thing. But as as someone who has me personally given my life to Christ, there's you know things that I have been forgiven of, and obviously that there is. I mean. Uh, you know, with with dealing with my father, that's to a, a whole new level there. But to um, we're called to forgive as as Christ forgives, and I think that that is a, a big thing that um, when it comes to forgiveness, being able to live, we call I call it living in a state of forgiveness, um, and which is really just the opposite of living in a state of hatred and bitterness. And as which far would, as which would impact <clears throat> you personally more right, than ex- the person who has hurt you, right? Exactly, and that that is that was really the key for me in understanding that is that if I hold hate in my heart, it does not affect my father. My father does not feel that. I am the only one who has negative outcome from walking around in a state of hate and rage and just you know being able to let go of that creates a better life for me and. Ultimately, if I still live in a state of fear and hatred, ultimately he wins. You know, um, so there, there, there is the, and I think, uh, really, honestly, in, in a situation like you've experienced, Jennifer, I think that um, I can't imagine how you would find it in your heart to forgive your father without your faith, because it's mm-hmm. almost like a supernatural mm-hmm. uh, strength or grace that you're given. But you know, um, Jesus also talks about justice, and mm-hmm. um, your father was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Do you do you feel that that is justice, and mm-hmm. in terms of what has happened mm-hmm. next, ter- and his his punishment? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, a great question, and I definitely agree that that is there is a balance there of forgiveness and justice, and I'm really thankful that the authorities were able to get involved and that they were able to carry out justice for me and that I didn't have to pursue that in my own. So I can focus on more of the forgiveness and the letting go aspect and know that justice is still being served. So that was, I believe, one of the reasons why I was able to... to Focus on healing, really. Yeah, exactly. And um, and yeah, that was I think that, that was a, a really big part of it for me. When people hear your story, um, I would imagine, though, Jennifer, a lot of people would say, wow, this girl is is really strong in her faith, you know, mm-hmm. a strong believer uh, in her faith. But for a lot, it would make them question mm-hmm. God and say, well, yeah. why did you, uh, you know, allow this happen mm-hmm. to me? You know, I was a, I was a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah. Um, well, I feel that, you know, God doesn't promise, you know, a, uh, an easy life, but he does promise that he will supply the grace and the ability for us to walk through any trial and that he will be there with us through every trial. So I definitely have felt definitely have felt his presence through this whole thing and and another question that I get a lot about is um, you know our father was did claim to be a man of faith and he taught that to us and uh, how can you not question just religion and faith in general knowing that a man like this claimed to be of that faith so um, but we see this not only in you know you know abusers not only in the church and in faith but in sports and in uh, schools and in every aspect. So I don't think that it's a scourge that's across society. Right, exactly. But it's it's uh, that fact alone does not discredit my faith 
Um, it's my faith is my own. I'm not, so to speak, practicing my father's faith. My, my faith is my own, and it's a relationship that I have between me and God. And were you um, angry at God? You know, that was surprisingly that was not something that I really struggled with. I, def- I definitely think that different members of my family struggled with that to different levels, and that's their own story to tell. But for me personally. Anger at God was not something that I really struggled with. It was more of just relief when my father was removed from our lives. It was more of thankfulness to God and the knowing that um, that He protected us and me personally from, um, you know, it wasn't just sexual abuse that my father did, but there was physical abuse and stuff, and He, he protected me from from any, you know, any abuse that could have been worse or could have escalated even beyond what, what did happen. So I think it's just choosing to have the, look at the positive and focus on that. And how is, how is your family, how's your mom and, and mm-hmm. your, how's the, how, cause obviously it has a huge impact on a family. Yeah. Um, and I, and I would imagine perhaps for some of your siblings, this, mm-hmm. this was that they, probably hit them like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. and that was the last thing they ever would have expected. Yeah. Um, for those who hadn't experienced the abuse. Mm-hmm. So how Absolutely. are you all now? Um, uh, there, everyone, uh, is doing well, like considering everything. So thank you so much for asking. And particularly with my mom, um, she has, she's a very courageous woman and she, I feel like is dealing with even more, um, just more stuff than I am because it's, it's very, there's a lot of layers for her. Um, she also was a, a victim of my father's abuse. Did um, she know or, or about the abuse that he was crying so, out? So guys? in the early years, she was not, but by the time she started to kind of figure things out, she became a victim of his abuse as well, and he was very threatening to her and very violent with her as well. So um, so she's, at this point, she's having to sort through things on so many different levels that I'm not even having to deal with. Like, she's a single mom now, and she has six kids at home that she's raising on her own. Um, not only is she sorting through the abuse that she went through, but then also I, I feel like there's also like just on a public scale, a lot of people are very quick to support me and my siblings in this situation, but they're not quick to support my mom. And that hurts you as well. I right. It hurts me, but uh, like, I can't, I can't imagine like uh, me processing and going through this. If the general public was blaming me for what happened. And, uh, there is definitely a portion of people that are blaming my mom and she is, absolutely in the same boat that she's I a victim too. a victim exactly people so. talk about victim blaming and, and and you touched on it at the start that shame that you feel mm-hmm. and and she is also a victim when did you decide jennifer that you because it's not easy to speak out and mm-hmm. when when was the time that you decided i need to talk publicly mm-hmm. about this and, mm-hmm. and why what was the kind of motivating factor mm-hmm. so it was definitely a year and a half of just we took all of the time off the road. We closed down all of our social media platforms. And we were like, we don't know if we're ever going to be going back in the public eye. And uh, during that time, we started writing songs and kind of just as a healing process for ourselves. And once we got this collection of songs together and we were, you know, showing them to friends and family and stuff, people really started to connect with the songs and people started opening up and telling us their stories of abuse and things that they had, had just, um, you know, gone through in their lives. And... Uh, in turn, you know, we started thinking like, wow, like it was really beneficial for, for me personally to hear other people, people that I look up to, that I really respect to tell me their stories and say, so when I was your age, this and this happened to me. And, um, but I was able to move on and live a beautiful life after that. And that was so inspiring to me that, um, you were looking at other people who were at a different stage of of their healing. Right. Exactly. And we just really thought that, um, that inspiration that we got from other people, if we could turn around and even just inspire one person to go and live a beautiful life after abuse, it, it would be worth, you know, 
telling that message and, and you obviously have done a lot of healing and it's so it's so lovely to hear of your recent marriage and and yeah. um you're obviously very happily married and, yeah. and be, being a newlywed and everything so you what was it was it was it counseling was it faith was it a mixture that enabled you to be able to heal and and to trust mm-hmm. another man you mm-hmm. know yeah. uh, what was the thing that helped you on that journey yeah i i think it definitely was a combination my faith i would say first and foremost and then music was definitely a part of that healing and as far as my relationship with my husband or just like trusting men in general i'm really thankful that uh that was not a struggle that i really dealt with i think i was able from the very beginning to isolate the instances with my father as that is my father he is not all men and I don't want to look at all men through the glasses of my father and say oh they since my father was capable of this therefore every man is capable of this um, so that was not really a struggle that I had and I'm really thankful for and my husband is such a kind man and very very understanding of what I've been through and he's extremely supportive of me as an individual but then also um, you know and I kind of told him that I wanted to tell my story um, he's been very supportive of that and so I've just been been really th- thankful for that as in, in, as a whole and that is I know going to be one of the key things that you are talking about is this I know your experience and, and, and as you touch on just so people will also have the courage to, to speak out but then to heal as mm-hmm. well and, and hope at the end of, mm-hmm. of that horror that you experienced. Yeah, yeah. and our, the, the album that we recent, recently released is a collection of songs that are very, very personal to our story and the title track is a song called Speak My Mind which is kind of an internal struggle of how do I deal with abuse? How do I tell people? But the second part of that um, is kind of is a there's a song on the album called I Choose Life, and it's really the other side of that story. After you have gotten out of that situation, being able to say, okay, I'm you know I was a victim, but I don't have to be defined as a victim for the rest of my life. I can be a survivor, and I can choose to live a beautiful and happy life, and I can have hope, and I can have healing after a traumatic situation. And I think that that is mainly the the message that we wanted to that we wanted to just send out to people. It is a powerful message and I do hope and pray that perhaps, as you said yourself, Jennifer, if there's one person listening right Mm -hmm. now or who'll hear you speak tonight that is impacted positively and it gives them the courage to either speak out or to make that choice to say, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be defined by um, Mm. the evil that was done to me by somebody else. I'm going to try and and have a a happy life and a Mm hope-filled life. It's a very courageous message it's a positive message and uh, we thank you very much just for sharing with us this morning yeah. and uh, i'm sure that you've touched a lot of hearts yeah. and um we hope to catch up with you again soon maybe you'll be back in ireland singing uh, yeah. in the future we'll and we could we can we can hear some of those yeah. that music that you talked about i've yeah. been talking to jennifer mcdell you'll know her probably as jennifer willis but she got married very recently and if you want to hear jennifer speak she's going to be speaking as part of the festival of politics it's this evening at 8 p.m and it's taking place in taylor's hall which is in dublin and jennifer will be telling us her story as she's touched on today but the real theme is pulling through a survivor's story so that real focus of uh, the next steps the healing, the hope. If you want to find out more about the Festival of Politics because there's lots of different things going on, you can go to festivalofpolitics.ie and just for anybody listening, if you've been affected by this interview or indeed by sexual violence the number for the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's national 24-hour helpline is 1-800-77-8888 That's 1-800-77-8888 Thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast. Don't miss out. Subscribe today. Find out how at spiritradio.ie.